Well, good morning. Uh, happy June morning. I suspect perhaps you have to be reminded that it's June uh, to know that that's the case. Good to have you here as we continue. As, uh, as Garth already mentioned, one of the challenges that we face is trying to figure out who to listen to. Uh, lots of voices out there pushing us one way or the other. There's lots of people uh, challenging us to move this way, calling us to come back, pushing us ahead, telling us to turn around. There's, there's lots of different ideas out there, lots of different voices trying to direct us. I don't want to discount the fact that once we figure out what we're supposed to do, we still have to do it. But I want to suggest that one of the big challenges is figuring out what we're supposed to do. Well, last week we began listening to the voice of a man by the name of John. 2,000 years ago, this man, who was Zechariah's son, Christ's cousin, the one that Jesus proclaimed was the greatest person who had been born for all time up until that point, Uh, a man who was the last prophet of the Old Testament and recognized as the first prophet of the New, this guy, John, 2,000 years ago, walked out of the desert, stepped down to the Jordan River, and broke 400 years of prophetic silence by telling the people that it was go time, that what they had been waiting for was about to happen, but in fact, they were not ready. They thought they were ready. They had been listening to other voices, so they thought they were ready already. But John said, I'm here from God to speak to you, and you're not ready. When they asked what it is that they were supposed to do, John said, repent, be baptized, and produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And I suggested that those were good marching orders for us 2,000 years later. To adopt a, a posture of humility, to recognize that we are broken, to not ever think that we're better than anyone else, to, to understand that God's love for us is because God is good and loving, not because we are lovable, right? To, to confess our sins, and to have that not just as a one-time activity, but to have that as an attitude that we carry forward, one of humility and repentance. Additionally, we should be baptized. That's a one-time event. Um, Many of you have been baptized. Many of you signed up to be baptized. I suspect many of you still need to sign up to be baptized. You can do that today. We will have a baptism. It is a way of publicly identifying with Christ. It is one of the sacraments of the church. It is something that we are called to. And then finally, we are to live a life as children of God. We are to live as people who have been bought by God. We are to live as as people who have been adopted into his family and have been filled up with his grace, and we are consequently to be loving and caring. We're to give our lives away. We're to serve others. We're to care for others, especially those who are broken and disenfranchised, especially the poor. Well, today we continue with the conversation that John was having with the people. Uh, we're going to look at at the way he points to Christ. 
there will be people who will come along and ask him if he is the one that is going to lead them. Are you the Messiah? Are you the one that we've been waiting for? They've not been around somebody with his kind of power. He's a a biblical, passionate, spirit-filled preacher. They've not seen anyone with his kind of influence and authority. So they begin to think, maybe he's the one. And that's where we pick up today, Luke chapter 3, beginning with verse 15. Luke 3, verse 15. The people were waiting expectantly and were all wondering in their hearts if John might possibly be the Christ. He might be the Messiah, the anointed one. So all the way back on page 3 of this book, the promise is made that God is going to send someone to rescue us, to redeem us, to defeat evil, to make it right. That the promise that God makes is repeated, it is clarified, it is expanded upon hundreds of times in the Old Testament. When you take all those different promises, descriptions, prophecies about the Messiah, they, they fall out roughly into three categories. There are those that describe the Messiah as a king, there are those that describe the Messiah as a suffering servant, and there are those that describe him as a mystical figure. Before Christ comes along, it is impossible to imagine how one person could could fulfill all three of those categories of descriptions. It just it doesn't make sense, right? How is someone going to be a king and a suffering servant at the same time? Now, I, I've talked about this before. The prophecies that we find in the Old Testament make sense when you look back at them after they've been fulfilled. But they don't, they're not clear enough, mostly, for us to figure out what they mean beforehand. So, after you're aware of the virgin birth, you can look back at this promise that the one will be the seed of woman and say, oh, I get it. I get now how seed of woman is a description of virgin birth, but I didn't get it when I just heard seed of woman. Right? The, the prophecies make sense after they've been fulfilled. Well, after Jesus comes along and we see one who is all-powerful, yet who is going to win by dying on a cross as a criminal. We see one who's king of kings, yet who's born in a barn. You begin to pull together some of these images. Fully God, fully man. You get the mystical figure, you get king, you get suffering servant. Before Christ comes along, people don't get this, and by and large, the Jews just chose to ignore those descriptions that talked about a suffering servant and those that talked about a mystical figure. They were looking for a king. They were looking for a warrior who was going to defeat Rome. They couldn't see past their own national ambitions. What they were looking for was someone with power. John comes along with power. John comes along, he's not out of central casting, he doesn't look like a king, right? He's been living alone, he's got a weird wardrobe, crazy diet, he's a bit too intense, but he's got power. And the people turn out to hear him, right? I mean, he's a rock star. Number one on iTunes, his clout score is high, Uh, you know, everybody's reading his blog, his jersey's outselling the Blackhawks. I mean, you don't have anybody bigger at that moment than John the Baptist. And so people ask him, are you the one? 
Are you the Messiah? John answered them, I baptize you with water, but one more powerful than I will come, the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. I'm not fit to untie his sandals. There's a a couple different ways this passage has historically been understood. One is that it it is a reference to the idea of a kinsman redeemer. You may remember that in biblical times, ancient times, that part of the world, if if a man died before, if a husband died before his wife had sons, then his brothers or the closest kinsman relative to him was to marry her and give her sons because sons were your 401k plan, okay? Sons would take care of you in your old age. You need sons to provide for you when you grow old. So if, if a husband dies before his wife has children, her, uh, his brother is supposed to marry her. Now, Ladies, you're entitled to imagine what that would be like and perhaps think, just shoot me now. I do not. I was crazy to marry into the family the first time. I would not do it a second time. I get that. We got a much better plan in place today. But that was the plan. And we see this not working in a very bizarre passage in Genesis 38 with Tamar and Judah. We see it actually working in the book of Ruth, when Ruth, who's a widow, is eventually marries Boaz, her kinsman redeemer. Well, Boaz was not next in line to marry Ruth. Someone else actually was between them. And so Boaz goes to this person in front of the elders in the gate of the city, and he says, I'm willing to marry Ruth and to be her husband and her kinsman redeemer, you have next option. And Ruth had land, right? There were reasons people might want to marry her because of the property they would marry into. But this man thinks about it for a while and says, I can't do it. And then he does a very odd thing. He takes off his shoe and he hands it to Boaz, right? And this is a, this is a way of saying, I'm out, right? I can't do it. I'm not able to do it. Okay? So it's, it's a sign in one sense of humility. We see when Moses is in the presence of the burning bush, the first thing he hears is, right, take off your shoes. You're on hallowed ground. You are, you are to humble yourself. You're to be weak in this sight. God is here. You need to humble and take that posture. So taking off your shoe was an act of humility. So there's a sense in which possibly what John is saying when he says, I'm not fit to untie his shoe, is I cannot step into his place and be your kinsman redeemer. Right? I am not qualified to do that. The more common way this passage has been understood is, right, he's so much better than I am that I could not untie his shoes, right? And this has a particular first century cultural context that makes this a more powerful statement. Lots of people um, don't do feet, right? They don't don't do clean feet, right? They they don't like feet at all. I come from a family that's fine with feet. 
I married into a family that doesn't do feet. And so people just don't like feet at all when they're clean. In the first century, you really didn't have clean feet, right? I mean, it's a dirty world. And uh, there's not paved sidewalks, right? There's just dirt trails. And when it rains, they get muddy. And oh, by the way, these trails are trafficked by lots of animals, big animals. So you've got manure and urine and urine sandals, right? It doesn't work. Now, not sandals with socks. It's not that bad, but it's bad. It's sandals. It's a dirty world. And so the worst job out there was cleaning someone's feet. And it was reserved for the lowest slave. So just for a moment, let's remember that Jesus washes the feet of his disciples. This was, this was the job no one would do. Rabbinic literature said that a disciple was expected to do everything for his master. So Jesus had disciples, a rabbi had disciples, other teachers had disciples. The rule was that the, that the, that the disciples were to do everything for the master except care for his feet. They didn't have to do that. That was for slaves. So in that context, what we're essentially being told is that John the Baptist says, I'm not able even to do the job that nobody else would do for him. That's how much higher he is than I am. I baptize you with water. Right? It's an it's a, it's a important event, but it's on the outside. Right? It, it's it's, it's going to hit you on the outside. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. The Spirit of God, if you put your faith in him, God himself comes to indwell you. And he begins to clean you from the inside out. Right? I can't do that. And he also will baptize you with fire. Now, fire in the Bible is used occasionally uh, to refer to purging or to a sort of sanctifying children of God. We can be put into a trial that is going to refine us. But it's also used in terms of judgment. And that's the way it gets used here. And, and that's clear when we continue to read on. Verse 17, it says, His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Um, Sherry's family's from Kansas, where many of them are wheat farmers. Her uncle, cousin, her parents, who left 50 years ago, still occasionally go back for the wheat harvest. Uh, I worked for Deere one summer, John Deere, building combines that harvested wheat. So we have quite a pedigree when it comes to wheat, none of which helps understanding what uh, John is talking about there. So let me explain it this way. This is a plant of wheat. You know, there would obviously be roots. You've got a stalk, and then you've got this part at the top, which is called the spike. And the spike has the kernels in it, that uh, are the actual grains of wheat that would be ground to make flour. Okay, so today, the way we harvest wheat is we wait until it's ripe and the grains are about to fall off the stalk, right? You 
hit it, and they will fall. And a combine comes by, and it cuts it down, and then it sort of shakes it, and it, and it thrashes it, and the grains fall down into a bin, and everything else, all of this, all of this, everything else is, is shot out the side out of, a, out of a big auger, okay? And you end up just with the grain. 2,000 years ago, uh, before John Deere invented the plow, let alone the combine, um, they harvested wheat much earlier than we harvest it today. They didn't want to wait until it was ripe because they didn't want it falling off the vine in the field, falling off the stalk in the field. So uh, about a couple weeks before it was ripe, someone would come by with a sickle and would cut the wheat. And they would tie this wheat into big bundles called sheaves, and they would stack them together so that they were propped up and the grain was off the ground up in the sun, wouldn't be wet, wouldn't rot, but it could dry out. After it dried out, they would then take it, carefully take it to a barn to, um, or to a threshing floor, and they would shake it over this floor, and the, the grain would fall down, as would a bunch of this other stuff. It would all fall into a pile. So then you would take a pitchfork, a winnowing fork, and on a windy day, you would throw this pile up into the air. The grain, which is heavy, is going to fall right down. Everything else that's chaff is going to be blown by the wind into another pile. Okay? So what John the Baptist is in essence saying to everyone is, I'm not the guy. I'm just a prophet. I'm just a spokesman. I'm a relatively insignificant opening act. I'm here to tell you that you need to get ready for the one who's coming. He's a prophet, but he's also judge. He has authority over everything. He has authority over heaven and hell. He has authority over you. And when you meet him, He will sort you. He will either be your savior or he will be your judge. He's either going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit or with fire. You're either going to end up in this pile that gets kept or you're going to end up in another pile that gets burned. This is a frightening statement. If we understand what John is saying... This is a frightening, horrific statement. Last week was no different. Last week, John says, right, the axe is at the root of the tree. And those trees not producing fruit will be cut down. And now he says Jesus is going to sort us into one or two piles. Reading on. Verse 18. And with many other words, John exhorted the people and preached the good news to them. Now, you're entitled to ask, um, how exactly is this good news? This seems like very frightening news. Well, it's good news in this sense, right? We're, We're all headed to the wrong pile, right? We're all broken, 
We're, we're damaged. We're sinful. We're full of pride. We're full of ourselves. We're estranged from God. The good news is the gift of eternal life is free. The gift of forgiveness is free. It, it's everything that needs to be done for you to be forgiven and reconciled to God has been done. All we need to do is submit to God. All we need to do is bow our knee to God. All we need to do is to recognize that in Christ we have someone who is altogether different and better and that we should be more like him and in fact that he died for us and we're going to follow him. It's not that we have to go out there and do so many good things that the good is going to outweigh the bad. That would be a horrifying idea. All we're expected, invited, required to do is to embrace the love, the grace, the mercy of God that is extended to us through Christ. That's good news. And so, John exhorts the people. He challenges them, right? He preaches with power and he says, look, get in the right pile. Humble yourself, admit your sin, adopt a posture of humility towards God. (laughs) And then it works. Verse 19, when John rebuked Herod, the Tetrarch, because of Herodias, his brother's wife, and all the other evil things he had done, Herod added this to them all. He locked John up in prison. Luke is um, going to, Luke is going to close the chapter on John the Baptist for us right here. John will come up uh, again, but not as the main player. He's going to have a supporting role as it relates to, to Jesus. And so as soon as we get to the next passage, it's Jesus front and center, and it will never not be Jesus front and center from that point on. So, so Luke is simply putting a little bit of an end, telling us what happens to John. And John, like many prophets, uh, comes to a rather um, horrific end. Uh, he preaches the good news. He calls people to repent, be baptized, and produce fruit in keeping with repentance. Some people embrace it and receive it. Uh, some people don't. Herod doesn't. Herod is uh, sort of a second-rate, second-rank prince, along with his brother. He's ruling in the northern part of Israel under Pontius Pilate. Herod wants to be king of the Jews like his father, Herod the Great, had been. Um, he's, he's sort of a joke. He's a, he's a bit of a thug. And his life is a mess. Um, he had had an affair with Herodias, his brother's wife. Herodias, everybody wanted the name Herod. So you got Herod the Great, Herod, Herod, Antipasus, Philip Herod. Everybody's Herod's like, you know, and the women are Herodias because they're coming from the same trying, claiming that family title. Well, when Herod Antipas marries Herodias, has an affair with Herodias, who is married to Philip, uh, this is not just an affair and adultery. It actually turns out to be incest as well. Uh, like, it's confusing, but let's just say like some parts of the Deep South, the family tree doesn't have enough branches at this point. Um, Her- Herodias will not just be Herod's wife, but will also be his niece and his sister-in-law all at the same time. doesn't work. 
Here, uh, John says, no, foul, that's wrong. You need to repent, you need to be baptized, and you need to produce fruit in keeping with repentance. Herod says, you, John, need to go to jail, and he locks him up and eventually will have him uh, put to death. Well, so where does that leave us um, on this uh, communion Sunday? Well, I think it leaves us with a message to two groups of people. To those who would say, yes, I get the repentance, the baptism, and the producing fruit in keeping with repentance, and I have, I have repented, and I need to continue to repent, and I need more of an attitude of humility that I have, but I've stepped over the line, placed my faith in Christ, been baptized, and I keep getting up every day, sort of trying to be more grace-filled, more loving, more caring, to live more like who I've been called to be. If you're in that camp, then I simply want to say, hey, recognize that although we're not John the Baptist, we're not prophets, we don't have those gifts, uh, we're all called to share the love of God with others. We're called to proclaim the good news. The good news is not good thinking, it's not good science, it's not good research, it's not good intuition, it's good news. The only way you get news is if somebody tells you the news. You can't figure it out on your own. God's plan is that we would share the good news with other people. And so, share the news. Share the story. Invest in people. Love people. Serve people. Be ready to offer uh, an answer for the hope that is within you. Invite people into your small group to come to MOPS or Route 66 or Men's Fraternity or whatever. We, we need more people taking risks, taking chances, being bold. That's the plan. So it's good news. We need to share the good news. Secondly, it, if you're in the camp that says, well, um, I don't actually know which pile I'm in. Okay? I, I don't know that I'm not in this pile of chaff over here. Um, the good news is, right, it's a free gift. Coming to faith in Christ is not a long process. It's an act of repentance, and it's an act of pledging your life to Christ. And to say, I'm going to put my weight down. I'm going to follow him. I'm, I'm headed down that path from now on. And as we prepare to come to this communion table, if you're in that camp, Maybe you thought when you came in you were doing well, you've done everything you can to to quiet the voice that says, there is a God and I've done wrong. (laughs) You've, You've done everything you can to quiet that voice. I'm telling you there's another way. Yes, right, we have all. There is a God and we have all done wrong. And we can look right at that and say, but Christ died for me that I might be forgiven. And you can accept Christ. And as we uh, prepare for communion, I'm going to pray for us. And if you would like to make a decision for Christ, I'm going to invite you to just pray along with me. If you would like to be one who humbles himself, like to be one who accepts and embraces Christ, then I would encourage you to pray something like this. God Almighty, 
I realize that I have been running from you. I have been selfish. I have done wrong. I have often done wrong knowing that it was wrong. I've not done the things that I've been called to do. I admit that. I confess that. I am sorry for my sin, and I want to be a better person. And I realize that there is no one like Jesus. And the idea that you would have sent your son from heaven to come down to earth and die in my place to show me how to live, um, I, I just, that's amazing. I, I want in. I want your acceptance. I want to be redeemed. I want to be forgiven. I want heaven. And so I, I pledge myself to you. I submit to you. I bow my knee. I declare that I want to follow Christ. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for becoming my Savior. Spirit of God, fill me, guide me, empower me, help me to become a better person from the inside out. In Christ's name.